and we'd talk about like these losses and whatnot. And what did that amount to on, on the logical side? If you bought the S&P 500 in September 2004 and you reinvested dividends, you would have grown that 29000 by 242%. It'd be worth $101,000 today, about a 9.1% annualized return. That's with dividends reinvested over that 14-year time frame. So monetarily, $101,000 today, I'd have $101,000 extra dollars in an IRA or in an investment account, whatever. That's what it amounts to today. And that's, you know, I'm looking at two years of funding a nice retirement and lots of national parks and vacations out there. Uh, in 10 or 15 years from now, it's uh, maybe double or triple that. That's the whole story and the loss that 18 years later, it still is like fresh in my mind. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Bill Winterberg. Bill, are you ready to rock? Andrew, yes, I am ready to rock. Oh, yeah. Let me tell the audience a bit about you. Bill is a CFP and is the founder of FPPAD, a technology publication and business consulting firm to financial services organizations. Bill produces the FPPAD FinTech Flash Briefing and was the host of FPPAD Bits and Bytes, a video broadcast and email newsletter covering technology news and information for financial professionals. He provides technology commentary for the Journal of Financial Planning and was the monthly technology columnist for Morningstar Advisor. Investment News recognized Bill as a 40 under 40 honoree for his influence in the industry and he was named the 2013 Investor Advisor Magazine IA25 list of the most influential people in the profession. Prior to entering financial services, Bill was a software engineer for Hewlett Packard and Leapfrog Toys. Bill lives in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife and nine-year-old son. Bill, take a minute to fill in any tidbits about your life. You did a good job with the introduction, Andrew. Really, really well done. Some of the things that I didn't send you, you talked about me being in fintech for the better part of 10 years. I've been an independent consultant here in the United States around fintech. But a couple other things that I didn't send you is back in 2004, 2005, I was playing trumpet in the marching band for the NFL football franchise the Baltimore Ravens. I, you being from Cleveland, I don't know how you feel about that. I won't hold it against you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, <laughs> sir. So I had a really good time playing the trumpet in the band for two years, going to every home game, being on the field. Nothing can really describe the experience of being right down on the field. The fireworks are going off in the stadium. The planes are flying overhead for opening day. A really thrilling sensation. So if you're interested in experiences going to an opening day game for an NFL game, is pretty good experience in my mind. Some of the other things that I didn't fill you in on are I'm a little bit of a road trip connoisseur. So over the last couple of summers, I've taken 5,000 mile trips across the United States from Atlanta out to Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and almost two dozen other national parks. So we have about 12,000 miles on our car with a little travel trailer. I, do they call them caravans out in the Far East in Australia? Yeah. Uh, so we're towing our little trailer behind us, seeing all those uh, national parks and the beauty that the United States has to offer. And, and last but not least, I'm also a little bit of a 
pinball enthusiast. Uh, several years ago, I purchased my dream machine, the Twilight Zone. Uh, so if you actually check out my Twitch channel, I activated that just like weeks ago. I now stream myself, which is really weird, playing my Twilight Zone pinball machine just oh, for fun and entertainment. In the show, show notes for sure. For sure. Check it out. It's weird to like play pinball and stream it, but as a fintech person and a consultant, right? It's my responsibility to investigate some of those trends and see how they can be applied to financial advisors as well as clients and prospects. And Twitch is definitely gaining in momentum and audience. And so I'm dabbling in it as well. Fantastic. Well, that takes me back to when I grew up in little Hudson, Ohio, in Cleveland, outside of Cleveland, between Cleveland and Akron. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I'll sing a little song for Bill here. He's a pinball wizard. There has to be a twist. A pinball wizard's got such a supple wrist. All right. How do you think he does it? I don't Okay, know. that's it. That might be my worst podcast mistake. Yes, there's your, there's your audition. All right, so now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, so this bad investment has to do with a primary residence purchase, so a home purchase. So this was 18 years ago. It's the end of 2018. This happened in the summer of 2000, 18 years ago. So at the time, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, south of San Francisco, which is Silicon Valley, where at the time, Intel and Yahoo and Toys.com and ePets were all the big internet.com companies and were growing like gangbusters during that time. And so I had become engaged to my fiance in October 1999 uh, that, that I'm still married to 18 years in into our marriage. So that's good news. That's no, no mistake there. <laughs> so both of us were graduating from college in the springtime of 2000. We were engaged. We were going to get married in September of 2000, and we were looking for what are we going to do for housing. I lived with my mother. She lived with her parents, and it was time to figure out what we we're going to do when our life was getting started. And we soon figured out in, again, the summer, the spring of 2000, because the dot-com bull market was well underway, there was no rentals available houses were really expensive. And so we learned pretty early on during our due diligence process that we just weren't finding anything really suitable that was new and didn't require major updates or renovations or just things to bring some of these units up to you know safety. Uh, or they weren't located convenient to where we were working or where we wanted to be. Uh, so we started to investigate different types of housing situations. And we came across the South Bay area a series of parks that have manufactured homes. So these are homes that they built inside, indoors in a factory, put them on the back of a semi-truck, a flatbed, and they move it to this park and they set them up there. So in some respects, they are more systematic in terms of their build quality. So they're built in just a few days instead of over the course of a couple of months. They're not exposed to the elements while they're under construction like the quote-unquote stick-built houses are. And we, as we learned about that, we knew we could get an 1,800-square-foot, three-bedroom, two-bath manufactured home, and you could pick everything that you want. You could pick a fireplace. You could pick dormer windows. You could pick bay windows, all the things to customize it. And the prices were fairly reasonable. So the price of what we were looking at was – 
$179,000. It's not bad in the Silicon Valley where homes today easily go for millions of dollars. Back then, they were still going for $750,000, $600,000. And for two people just graduating college, we just didn't have the type of money to put down for some of those large homes or just starter homes. I shouldn't say large, just starter homes. And rents were $2,500 to $3,000 a month for two-bedroom apartments and one bath and maybe 1,000 square feet. So that's why when we looked at, well, what does it cost to get one of these manufactured homes? We were able to put 5% down. That was $9,000. So we financed $170,000. You may not believe this, Andrew, that I looked up my interest rate on the first mortgage we got out for this thing, $170,000 financed, 11 and three quarters percent <laughs> for 30 years. What were we thinking? Well, we were thinking, okay, in the first six months, we'll just refinance. But even at that price, that mortgage payment was $17.25 a month. And they put these homes in parks and you do pay space rent. So you have to factor that into the total cost of ownership. But still with a space rent of $650, our total monthly payment for 1,800 square foot was $23.75. So we're still $125 less than the really bad apartments in the bad parts of town that were half the size and only had two bedroom, one bath. So that helped us rationalize that this isn't that bad of a decision. And I sure love, enough, I love, the, I love the fact that you're, what you're explaining is the process of research. And that is something that's often missing in the case of worst investments. So it makes me think, wow, it sounds like what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Yeah, so these are all facts and the parts of our due diligence and going into this purchase, it did not seem like a very hazardous condition. Uh, so as I was talking about that terrible interest rate we, <laughs> we acquired, I looked up in December of 2001, which why did I wait more than a year to refinance? But I got the paperwork in December 2001, refinanced at eight and three quarters percent and went from 30 years to 20 years. So we cut down the term of the loan. Not bad. That monthly payment's $1,541. Over that year, the space rent did go up $50 to $700, but still $2,241 a month, well below the $2,500, $2,600, or $3,000 for a comparable size apartment. So we were feeling well. We had customized, you know, gotten the drapes and done the painted walls and done everything that we wanted, which are some of the benefits of owning your own home to be able to do some of that customization. So you have to provide some value. You have to figure out some value there because you can't necessarily do some of those permanent changes in an apartment. So fast forward just a little bit in that time when we refinanced, my wife was working in the biotech industry. I was doing software with LeapFrog Toys that came up in my bio. But in the winter of 2001, she was encouraged to apply to med school. So in the spring of 2002, she went on interviews to 14 or 16 med schools across the nation. She was waitlisted at about six schools. And while we were starting our summer vacation in June 2002, she received a call. We were like connecting in Dallas uh, between planes. I, I guess I had a cell phone in 2002. I, it's, it's not that far back. And we answer this call and it's the University of Maryland. She has now made it off the wait list can you be in Maryland August 6th to start school? It's like, well, I think the answer is yes. 
So that's great, but wow, we thought we were waitlisted and this wasn't going to happen and it would be another year before she applied and was accepted. So we went through a lot of exercises really quickly to fly her out to Baltimore, which is where the school is located. And fortunately, her parents were in the state of Delaware, which is just about a 60-minute drive from Baltimore. So she had some support, and we got her apartment really close to campus and loaned a bunch of furniture from her parents so that she was situated. Now, what do we do with this house in California? Um, So we decided it's way too much space for me just by myself, but I was committed to working with LeapFrog for another couple of years. A part of that was I had unvested stock options that I would like to work and vest and be able to liquidate and cash out. So that was an incentive for me to stay in California with this house. So we decided that summer to list it, put it on the market. Why did we do that? I'm checking my notes because one of the downsides with this home and the park in which it was located was it must be owner occupied. And that was a big aha for us. That was a gotcha. We did not go into this transaction intending to rent ever. So it never really crossed our mind. Well, are there rules that prohibit us from renting out this property? Uh, it, It just didn't cross our mind. And it turned out that two years later, it was a big gotcha for us. And so we couldn't rent it out. It had to be owner occupied. Well, all right, then we've just got to sell it. We've got to put it on the market. Well, uh, what, what is that timing? That is the summer of 2002. I'm not sure that I put in like what the NASDAQ was doing, but I think the NASDAQ high was March of 2001 and really rapidly within 2002, within the year, the, the NASDAQ had been cut in half, if not even more. Tech stocks, the wind went out of their sails, and it was a terrible market. And it turned really quickly, especially in Silicon Valley, where all the internet startups that were not making any money but were IPOing, their stocks were going from $100 a share to $0.50. Cents. Uh, so that was the environment that I found myself, because I was alone in California, managing this sale. And so I was kind of silly to think, well, I need to save the 6% commission. Let me just list it at what we paid at that $179,000 and just cut my losses. I at least cannot pay the 6% in the agent's fees and the buyer's and seller's fees or the uh, commission and then just get out from the house. So I put it on uh, the market as a for sale by owner and that lasted a year. Uh, and during that year time frame, I did drop the price to 175, then to 169, and to 164.9. I dropped the price and was pretty aggressive about it. But the surprise to me was there were no buyers. No buyers. The house really doesn't have value when there's no buyers in the market. So that second year, in the summer of 2003, I contacted a listing agent because it was too much work for me to hold open houses and try to do marketing on my own while I was working for LeapFrog. I had a full-time job already that was taking up a lot of time. I could not afford to be this listing agent on my own. So we contracted with that agent in the summer of 2003. And guess what? I did not get a single offer for over a year. And it was September 2004 Okay, two years after my wife left California, September 2004, that I got an offer for 147500 
And I thought about it and I hemmed and hawed and should I counter offer? And I decided, nope, I'm going to take this offer. It's a solid offer. If I accept it and all the contingencies and inspections are okay and the place is practically brand new and it passed, I cut my losses right then and right there. So I had to come to the table uh, at the close of September 2004 with cash, right? And here we are at the ripe age of 24, who we've been in our careers for three years or four years, more or less. I think I was fortunate because the timing was that LeapFrog did go public a couple of years earlier, like in the summer of 2002. I think that's right. So I did have the fortune of having some shares that vested, and that was actually the cash that I brought to the table. I brought 29565 to the table. That was probably, you know, short of getting a car for cash or something. That's one of the biggest checks that I've just personally wrote. And yeah, it may not be big for everybody, but when you're 24, man, 30 grand in cash Huge. is tough to come up with, right? And so that was a real tough thing to do, especially because you're like, well, you know, I got some of the stock options and I'm selling it, but oh, wait a minute. I can't have fun with that money. I've got to take it to the closing and the settlement meeting so that I can pay off this loan, which was still at what, eight and three quarters percent. Uh, so that's what we did. And, and we'd talk about like these losses and whatnot. And what did that amount to on, on the logical side? If you bought the S&P 500 in September 2004 and you reinvested dividends, you would have grown that 29000 by 242%. It'd be worth $101,000 today, about a 9.1% annualized return. That's with dividends reinvested over that 14-year time frame. So monetarily, $101,000 today, I'd have $101,000 extra dollars in an IRA or in an investment account, whatever. That's what it amounts to today. And that's, you know, that's, you know, I'm looking at two years of funding a nice retirement and lots of national parks and vacations out there. In 10 or 15 years from now, it's maybe double or triple that. So that was, that's the whole story and the loss that 18 years later, it still is like fresh in my mind. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So now the question is, what lessons did you learn from this experience? Well, clearly the lesson is try your best not to underestimate the value of flexibility. And liquidity is important in there too. How quickly can you convert your asset to cash in the event that circumstances change in your life? It doesn't even necessarily need to be whether or not this investment has gone bad or is still good. But some, many times circumstances happen in your life that you cannot predict. In the summer of 2000, my wife was on the path to being in biotech. I was on the path to staying in software engineering. Two years later, she left California full-time, left her job, became a med student. It's funny, I share that 18 years later, I did not marry a doctor. She, she was not a doctor when I married her. She was a researcher in biotech. And so it's a career transition that happened after that moment. So to go back to that house, uh, also that uh, owner-occupied language was something that restricted our flexibility. Because in other cases, you can purchase a house and you can go ahead and rent it out. And many people build very successful real estate portfolios of rentals. And if they're in a high demand rental market, if you're near a college or a medical school, you always have great turnover of great qualified applicants and renters. Uh, but in our case, we were not 
wise to the fact that there was this language in the location of the house that restricted that flexibility. Uh, again, it took us two years to sell. It's that liquidity, you know, and not having to get, uh, not having any offers to buy for two years. That's unheard of, right? But it happened to me, not that it's going to happen to everybody else out there, but it's just an anecdotal story that you cannot count your chickens before they hatch. You cannot count on a fast sale on real estate unless you're willing to take a huge loss. Yeah. Now, I wasn't willing yeah. to take a huge loss, but I mean, man, it, it still cost quite a bit when we were still in our mid-20s. Okay. Well, let me summarize some of the takeaways I took from that. I mean, the, the key thing that, that you mentioned was liquidity. And I think it's everybody wants to buy their own home, but remember that homes are not necessarily li liquid, particularly at the times that you want to liquidate. And the point is liquidity matters most at the time that you want to sell. And um, a lot of times when everybody wants to sell is when you want to sell and that could be hard. So let's go through a couple of things to, that I take away. The first thing is how do you do research? How do you understand an investment for some things that are really hard to know, like this owner-occupied you know, clause? It's something that, you know, as, as, a, as a beginning investor, it's just hard to know everything. So that's the first thing is that, you know, there's, there's kind of knowns and unknowables. That's different. This could have been discovered, but it would have taken a different state or a different level of knowledge possibly. So that's my first challenge to you and to the audience is to think about what do we do with investing in situations where there are things that are known, but they're hard for us to really understand their importance. The second thing is that you mentioned about timing. I mean, really what it is, is timing is critical. Supply and demand, we saw a case where demand for houses collapsed. And so timing just was wrong. Now, for people that have a lot of money, and have a lot of flexibility, they can wait that out. But for the average person, that can be very, very difficult. Now, the third thing I take away is the concept is um, what, I can't remember who always said it to me, but somebody used to say, life's about inches and seconds. When you think about the inches and seconds, you're very lucky that you didn't lose your job. And you know that could have been the case given the deflation that was happening in that, you know, go ahead. Well, you, you mentioned not losing my job. I was laid off in February 2005. It did happen. I was fortunate that it didn't happen in February 2003 or February 2002. So another just anecdote is I wasn't expecting to lose my job. I would be working at LeapFrog for many years, but they were not successful in the marketplace after their gangbuster LeapPad learning system, which revolutionized the electronic toy market, there was just no successful follow-up toy that did as well. And I was caught up in the uh, second round of layoffs with, with LeapFrog. And so, it, yeah, some of those, it, it, yeah. So inches and seconds had something like a layoff happen before. I may not have had the wherewithal, I may not have had the cash and may not have had the flexibility and it may have cost me a lot more than the 30,000 that it did back then, which Absolutely. would add up to much, much more today. And the last thing that I would add is highlighting something that you talked about, about the compounding effect of that money, that if you had not had to cough up that um, cash to close on the house, you could have compounded that money in your favor rather than in someone else's favor. Um, one of the things that I, you know, we all know about the 
compounding effect and the magic of compounding. Um, but I think that, um, the, that the key thing is that compounding doesn't really come to us. The real benefits of compounding don't come to us until, you know, 20 or 30 years later. So we can look at a $1,000 today and say that could be worth $100,000, for instance, in 20 or 30 years. I'm going to give some advice that I wrote in one of my books on uh, how to start building your wealth, investing in the stock market. And that is a common thing that people say is make mistakes while you're young because you can recover from them and all that. But what I say in the world of finance, don't make your mistakes when you're young because the compounding impact of those financial mistakes is enormous. So it's a little bit of a contradictory message, but it's something that I try to wake up people that you've got to be really careful in those financial decisions and that your compounding example, you know, highlighted it. Is there anything you'd add to that? I phrase it the same way as, as you're talking about it. I, I think about try to avoid those mistakes that materialize in compounding. Here in the States, there's always that discussion about the latte factor and skipping your morning coffee. It's $4. It adds up to $100 a month and so on and so forth. Had we avoided this mistake, purchasing a home and not understanding the owner occupancy requirement, and deciding to, you know, we haven't talked about emotions here, but there was a reason why we chose not to live in the two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment. We wanted a little more space. We wanted to paint the walls. We wanted to do that stuff that young homeowners want to do. And I think we underappreciated the value of flexibility and being malleable and adjusting to situations. So because that desire for our own slice of heaven it cost us, and it cost us not just 30000 back in 2004, but that now compounds over decades because we were you know, 24, 26 at the time. When we're 60 or 55 and we're thinking about, hey, do you want to work for another 10 years until you're 65? Well, having that 300000 or 500000 whatever it compounds to over three or four decades, uh, that makes that decision quite a bit different. It's a, a mistake with compounding because yeah. I encourage lots of mistakes when you're young because you absolutely can recover. But if they involve that 40 or 50 year compounding timeline, think twice. Yep. Fantastic. Now, I just wrap it up by talking about a book that I read called Your Money or Your Life. I think it was Joe Rodriguez. I'll put it in the show notes. But the, the thing that that book taught me is that ultimately what we're doing is when we're spending, we're actually spending our energy. And what I learned from that book is the, to live deeply below your means. And I believe that that challenged me throughout my whole life to see if I could live deeply below my means. That is something I think for the listeners to think about when you see that house or that additional garage or, hey, it's got this and that, is that we tend to want to stretch ourselves beyond our means. And very few people think, I'm going to live deeply below our means. But take a look at Warren Buffett, obviously a guy that lives deeply below the palatial living that he could be living. So I would wrap it up with that. Let me tell you, listeners, that you have now got another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Bill, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, particularly compounding ones, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? 
My parting words that, Andrew, I, I think this series is very valuable because I do believe others have said that loss is really one of our greatest teachers. This series is good because, yes, these are anecdotal stories and they're emotional and they're very personal, but there are valuable takeaways and insight that you can apply to your own situation. Imagine that you're 24 in Silicon Valley and wading through all these pros and cons of the decision-making process. Would you have made different choices? What would you have done in that situation? Take what you learned from our discussion today and apply it not just to an anecdotal story like what you just heard, but apply it to your opportunities today and your opportunities in the future. So, Andrew, I've got to give you kudos for doing a series like this. I, I very much enjoy it. Amen, Brother Bill. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.